Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, as we continue our study through the book of Exodus, what we want to do today is to look at a familiar story for many of you, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 13, 14. And then I want to go back and look at some truths, some transferable truths that we see took place uh, in uh, Egypt back in 1446 B.C., and how do those truths transfer to us today? How can we apply them uh, to our lives? So that's what we want to accomplish today. Let me set the context for our passage. The nation of Israel, as you know, were slaves in Egypt, and in God's timing, He sent Moses to deliver them. As Moses went before Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not humored by the request, and it took ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to finally let the people go. The last plague was the worst of all, the striking down of the firstborn. While the firstborn of Egypt were struck down, Israel had the opportunity to sacrifice a Passover lamb, a lamb that was to be slain to sacrifice so that when they painted the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over their homes and death wouldn't strike there. Now, I want to step back and say death was in every home that night, right? Either the firstborn or that lamb, because the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, as we saw last time, there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, finally, Pharaoh and the Egyptians urge the Israelites to leave. The, the Passover was on the 14th day of this new first month for uh, Israel. Now they have started a new calendar year. And so it's the Hebrew month of Abib. It's the 14th day. And on the very next day, they march out of Egypt. Moses doesn't describe that. Remember, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He doesn't describe that in Exodus, but in Numbers 33, he describes how they left. Numbers 33, verses 3 and 4, the Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover. They marched out defiantly or boldly in full view of the Egyptians who were what? They were in mourning. They were in grief. They were bearing all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down, for the Lord had brought judgment on all their gods. So just think about that. Think about that picture. Here is the nation of Israel, 430 years in, in Egypt, about 200 years in slavery. They're marching out boldly. They know that God has delivered them. And the Egyptians, just this, the, the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, they're, they're burying their dead. They're in mourning. And Israel marches out boldly. Now, the Israelites left Egypt, and they were headed for the Promised Land. Right up here. So, if you were in this area and you wanted to get to this area, you just plug it in your Google's Maps, right? And the shortest route would be right here. This was called the Way of Horus or the Way of the Sea. It was a, it was a known road that... Uh, existed during that time. That's the route you would have taken. Except God, not Moses, was leading the route. And so God had a different plan. He knew that the, Philist the, uh, the Egyptian army, they were around here, and 
the Israelites weren't ready for war yet, and the Philistines guarded the road here. We don't know how strong the Philistines were at this point, but we know 40 years later, they were a strong fighting force, and Israel had a lot of trouble for many years running them out of the land. So look at chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine Philistine country, though that was the shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Now that word armed for battle, that phrase in the NIV is a little misleading. The better translation is they went out in orderly ranks or they went out like an army ready for battle. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't have arrows. They didn't have bows. They didn't have shields. They they were slaves. They weren't trained for battle. But the picture here is they're marching out like an army. Now it's interesting in verse 9, 19 rather, that, uh, that Moses is sure that he takes Joseph's Body. Remember, we, we studied Genesis and we saw that Joseph was the, the one who God sovereignly led to be the second in command of Egypt. And when famine hit the land, uh, he got his family to come to Egypt in the first place and, and, and able to rescue them from famine. That's why they had come to Egypt uh, in the beginning. Well, Joseph is long gone, but think about it. He knew back in Genesis. God promised Abraham, I'm going to take your, your, your people. They're going to be in a foreign land for a while, but then I'm going, to, I'm going to get them to the promised land. Joseph knew that. He believed that. And so before he died, he would have told someone, hey, when you leave here, be sure to take my bones. Don't bury me here in Egypt. I want to go with, I want my bones buried in the promised land. Now just think about that. Centuries have gone by. So as they relate that one century to another, there is a, there's instruction and also a promise, right? Hey, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but God's going to deliver us. And when he does, don't forget Joseph's bones. Hey, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, the next generation said. But when God delivers us, and he will, don't forget Joseph's bones. So Joseph would have been mummified. So here, here uh, uh, Moses is going to take a, a, a casket with the mummified body of Joseph, and they head out of Egypt. Now notice who leads them when they travel. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 20. After leaving Succoth, They camped at Etham, at the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Think about that. Just picture that. By day, the people have this. It would have been, now there are two million people. They're spread out over a large area. By day, there's this huge cloud. It was always leading them. It was always with them. They all, God graciously demonstrated his presence. Sometimes he spoke from the cloud, actually. 
But it was always there. There was never a place the Israelites could turn and, and not see the cloud. It gave them shade, probably during the day. But that cloud was God's presence. It was always there. And then by night, it was a pillar of fire. So it gave them warmth, but it gave them light as well so they could travel by day or by night. God's presence was always with them. He graciously showed the Israelites that he would never leave them. He would never forsake them. God was always with them, visibly, tangibly, physically in that in that cloud. So the Israelites are at the edge of the desert that separates Egypt from Asia. Probably, again, whatever commentaries you study, we don't know exactly where they were. We don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea. That's not my purpose today, but to explain all that. But here they are, right here in this area. They're getting ready uh, over here to uh, cross into the uh, Sinai uh, Peninsula there. And they, and they stop. God stops them. And he says, I don't want you to go across. I didn't want you to go on this route. I don't want you to go across. I want you to head back up to the north. Look at, verse 14, look at chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people to turn back and encamp near Pi-ha-hiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. God's taken care of everything in Egypt except the military. Now he's going to gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am who? I'm the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Now again, God's in charge and he's taking them on this strange path. Could have taken him here. He could have handled the Egyptian army. He could have handled the Philistine army, but he chose not to do that. He takes them down here, says, no, I don't want you to go across. I want you to go back up. This would have been a, this map doesn't do it justice. This would have been a huge sea right here. So now the Israelites are hemmed in. They're hemmed in by the sea on one side. They're hemmed in by large mountain ranges on the other side. And they start to get a little panicked as to what Pharaoh's going to do because Pharaoh has some plans. Look at verse 5. When the king of Egypt told the people, uh, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. Pharaoh takes about 600 of his best fighting chariots. A chariot was a tremendous weapon of war at that time. It was used, and David, King David, really never liked chariots, so we'll talk about that later. But he didn't like the chariots. You can't use chariots in the mountain areas, and you can't use chariots in soggy areas. But on a hard plain, man, you can make some time with a horse and a chariot. Usually had two two fighters in a chariot, a driver, a fighter. But here it says there's a captain uh, in the chariot. The word literally means a third man. So here you have a person guiding, you have a person driving, you have a person guiding, you have a person fighting, and that third man, that captain, will also have a shield. So he is, he is loaded for bear. 
as he goes out after the Egyptians. He not uh, the Israelites. He not only takes the chariots, the six hundred of his best, but he also takes other chariots, takes horsemen, he takes troops, trained, powerful, large military force to catch up with the Israelites, and there they are, hemmed in by a sea on one side. Can't get across the mountains on the other side, and they got the Egyptian army coming from the north. Look at verse ten. As Pharaoh approached the Israel, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said, "They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the desert to die? What have you done bringing us out here? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians?" It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. The people of Israel, as we're going to see, always wanted to turn back, didn't they? Always wanted to go back. Sometimes we want to do that too. We like to think about the good old days, don't we? We could live some of those old days over. Let's go back into the temptation and sin we were in because it's too hard to move forward. Let's quit trusting in God and go back because we feel hemmed in. Look at verse 13. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. One of Moses' finest moments. Think about it. They are hemmed in and and, and the most powerful army in the world is pursuing them. Moses said, don't be afraid. Stand firm, and you're going to see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. I love verse 14. Exodus 14, 14. Mark it down. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Will you read that with me? The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let's try it one more time. We'll do it together this time. You ready? The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Man, that's a tremendous truth, isn't it? It's hard to apply sometimes. The word still means to be silent. It means to stop panicking. One translation says, just stay calm. It doesn't mean you quit praying. It doesn't mean you quit doing, but it says in your heart of hearts, know that the battle belongs to God. God's going to fight for you. You can stay calm. He's in charge. We know it doesn't mean to be quiet because look at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, why are you still crying out to me? As Moses is telling them to be still, he's still crying out to the Lord. Lord, that Egyptian army is on the way. Tell the Israelites to move on. That word means to pull up their tents, to get ready. We got, we got, some, we got some ground to take. Look at verse 19. The angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind. And the pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness on one side and the light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Just think about that for a second. You know, when we, when we see those, uh, the movies of this, uh, we see the, 
the Israelites just making it through the water, and we see the Egyptians just behind them, and just as the last Israelite gets out of the water, then the waters close up, right? That's not what happened. The Egyptians caught up with them. But God stood in the middle. Just think about that. There's a camp of the Egyptians on one side. Here's the camp of the Israelites on the other side. God's in the middle. And he brings darkness to the Egyptians so they can't do anything. They're paralyzed by the darkness, the cloud. And he brings light, the pillar of fire, to the Israelites so they're ready to move. They're, they're getting ready to go. They're pulling up the tents. They're getting ready to move out. God's presence. Isn't it amazing? God always has our back, doesn't he? Always fighting for us, always protecting us, always with us. His presence was right there. His presence stayed right there until the Israelites were safely across. Moses, of course, took the staff of God, put it out over the water, as God told him, and the the sea parted. The winds drove the sea to bank up on one side and the other, on the right and the left. The dry, the ground was dry as they went through. Verse 22, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water. That word wall, it's not a small fence. It's like a city wall, huge city wall. Wall of water on the right and on their left. And Israel was safe when they were safe. God let the Egyptians make the right next move, and it wasn't a good one. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them, and, and Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, that would have been from 2 a.m. to sunrise, somewhere in there. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw them into confusion. That word means panic or disarray. Now, we don't know exactly how God did that. Verse 25 says he made the wheels of the chariots come off. He could have just made the wheels of the chariots come off. Later in Psalm 77, in poetry, it seems to be saying that God sent a thunderstorm, lightning and thunder and rain. And so you can imagine now this wet uh, sea bottom, uh, it would be no place for a chariot to be. And so the wheels are starting to come off of the, of the wheels. The wheels are trying to come off of the chariot and they're in disarray. And they say, man, God is fighting for them, not us. Look at verse uh, 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and the horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back in its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites, but the Israelites, went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord displayed, the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in Him and Moses, His servant. 
I'll stop there in the passage. We'll pick that up next time. But let's just draw some lessons. A real event that happened, again, some debate on exactly when, around 446 B.C. But what are the transferable truths that we can take from that Old Testament story and apply to our lives here in 2016. Here's the first one I see. God doesn't always take us on the shortest or easiest route. Do you believe that? Again, look at the route that He could have taken Israel on. Would have been nice. But he takes them all the way down here and then back up here. He passes apart the sea to get them over here. And then after he gets them in the desert, it's not a straight shot to Canaan, as we'll study. God needed to do that to demonstrate his power one more time for the Israelites. And that's why he does it for us. I know some of you are here today and you're not on the route that you had planned. It's not the route you plugged into your Google map and said, yeah, this is the shortest way, God. Let's get going. Some of you are waiting on husband or wife, and you've been waiting a long time. And I know it's tempting to take a shortcut. But remember, God doesn't always choose to take us on the shortest or easiest route, and He has a reason for you to be where you are. What are you going to learn from Him? Keep trusting Him. Some of you are in marriages that are difficult. There's no marriage perfect. I know that some of you in difficult marriage look around and you think every other marriage here is perfect. No one's is. And there are challenging times in relationships. God doesn't always take us on the easiest or shortest route. Don't give up. Depend on Him. Allow Him to bring healing. Allow Him to bring restoration. Maybe you're on a career path and you say, God, what in the world are you doing? Other people getting ahead? I'm just moving in circles here. God doesn't always take us on the easiest or shortest route. But whatever route He takes us on, He has things for us to learn. He never wastes our time. Some of you here have challenges with kids. Man, our kids hold our hearts in their hands, don't they? And some of you are going through some struggle. It's not the route you would have chosen. But God's there with you. He never wastes time. You might be feeling confused. You might be feeling fearful. We've been saying, I mean, Christians are like panicked about this election. 
Yeah, I know there are issues. I know there's a lot at stake. But we of all people need to realize that God's in control. If you're here today and you're feeling hemmed in by your circumstances, you're right where God wants you to be. Because when you look around and there's no way to go, the only thing you can do is look to Him. That's where He wants us all the time, depending on Him every day. And He is more than capable to give us whatever we need to get us to that next step. It's interesting that uh, Moses wrote <clears throat> the story. Remember, he, he wrote this later on. And he wrote the story in prose in uh, verse 14 and then in verse 15, or chapter 15 rather, uh, chapter 14, chapter 15, he writes it in poetry. Then Moses and Israel sing this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider. He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Moses would have never been able to write that had he not been hemmed in in that desert area. So after Laura and I were married, I taught and coached a year in Oklahoma. And then we moved to Dallas to start seminary. So I was there in seminary for four years. And uh, after four years, I was ready to, we were ready to roll. We sent out resumes everywhere, east, west, north, south. We didn't care. Ready for this new adventure in our life. And you know what happened? Nothing happened. We got back a lot of letters that said, thanks, but no thanks. So, graduated. Now it's summer. The summer's about over. We don't have a place to go. I had painted houses uh, while I was in seminary, and, and I didn't want to keep doing that. So, I found this job uh, coaching and teaching out at a little school, K-8 through school, just outside of Dallas, wondering what God was doing. And, and to make matters worse, I'm from Oklahoma. I had to teach Texas history. <laughs> and that's terrible. I mean, there's only one, only, the only thing in Texas history is the Alamo, and that did not end well for the Texans. So, I'm just thinking, God, what are you, what are you doing? That's not, that's not the route I planned. I studied for four years. We invested money into that. I didn't work. Lori worked. What are you doing? And um, I argued with him for a year, and nothing happened. And another year. And nothing happened. And then after about two years, I said, God, I don't get this. But you're God and I'm not. So if this is where you have me, I'm going to go back and get ready for a career in education. And then, then the next day, I got a job. Just kidding. That's the way that story always works, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> two, and a, two and a half years went by after that. Nothing happened. Four and a half years after seminary, before we came here. You know, I look back at that, and that, was, that were tough times. I was like, God, what are you doing? Why did I, 
I thought I had this calling, and I pursued it. I trained for it. And now you turn me back, and I'm doing the same thing I was doing before I left for seminary. I didn't have to do the, go to seminary if this was my career path. But I look back now, and God taught me so much, man. So many things in those four and a half years. You can trust me. My timing is always perfect. I'm in charge. You're not. And I don't always choose the shortest or easiest route. That's not the last time I've had some discussions with God over the route. But you can trust Him. And He's teaching you today things you need for tomorrow. And He never wastes our time. Here's a second lesson we learn. God's presence never leaves his people. Can you imagine you're one of those Israelites and you're marching and you always see the presence of God? You always see that cloud or you always see the, the fire, the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. It's day or night, it doesn't matter. God is always there. I mean, how, how could you ever murmur? How could you ever complain? How could, you, how could you ever be dissatisfied when you see the pillar there? That's what we would ask the Israelites, right? And they would say, hey, time out. We just saw the pillar at a distance. God lives in you. And you're panicking? And you're giving us a bad time? Look at a couple verses. John chapter 14. Jesus said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you. And he'll be with you for how long? Just only forever. The spirit of truth. The the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be where? In you. Now, I got to admit, I can't grasp that. I cannot, I can't fully grasp that the that creator, the eternal God, lives in me. He lives in me because of the work of Christ and in you. And he gives us everything we need to do what he's calling us to do. Look at this verse. But the but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. All things, and remind you of everything I've said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I, don't, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. That's right in the context of his giving, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us. You don't have to panic. God lives in you. He is with you and in you. Now, sometimes Israelites ignored the pillar, right? And sometimes we ignore God living in us. When they ignored the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, that's when they started to panic. When we ignore, forget, or choose to forget that God is living in us, that's when we panic as well. Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid 
what can mortals do to me? Because God's with you and in us. Lord's my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? God's presence never leaves us. He will never forsake us. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the depths of your disappointment or your despair or your grief or rejection. I don't, I don't know what you're going through. I just know this. If you're a believer, God's presence is with you. And he's going to give you everything you need for today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the day after that. You can trust him. You can depend on him. And that's the third point as we wrap this up. God is asking us to trust him. Remember when the Israelites saw their predicament, they panicked. They wanted to go back. It would be better, they said, if you had left us in Egypt. We told you not to bother us, Moses. Did you bring us out here to die? Yeah, I know we've seen the plagues, and I know we saw God's power, but the problem right now is that's just a memory, and the reality is there are the Egyptians, and we're hemmed in. What are you doing? God says, just just time out. Just trust me. Look at verse 14. My favorite verse. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord's got your back. The Lord's got it covered. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows your situation. He knows how you're, remember, he knows how you're feeling. He is in you and with you. And he'll fight for you. Now, it doesn't mean you just sit down, you know, let go and let God. Remember that old bumper sticker? That doesn't mean that. You're still praying. You're still doing what he's calling you to do. But with, within your heart, there is a, God, you've got this. You're in control. It's your battle. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. When I first came here, uh, after a couple of years, the senior pastor took, a, I was an associate, and the senior pastor took a sabbatical. And after he had left, there was a guy here at our church, solid, godly man uh, named Jack Nelson, great family, and uh, he discovered he had an inoperable brain uh, tumor. And uh, the next uh, months were extremely difficult. And man, I can remember, I was young at the time, and, and I would drive over to their house, and I would think, Lord, what? My stomach would be in knots as I, I just remember pulling on the roads to their house and thinking, what, what, what can I share with them? What can I tell them? What, what, what prayer would be comforting to them? What verse can I read? I mean, I, I'm, I'm feeble in this thing. I have like nothing to offer this family going through such a difficult time. And um, I remember getting over there and walking in the front room and he was in bed upstairs in his last days and walking up there, and family was there. And then they ministered more to me than I could minister to them. But we would read and, and pray. But here's what I always remember about uh, Jack Nelson. Long before he had a, an inoperable brain tumor, he had a license plate with this on it. 
T-B-I-T-L. That was on his license plate. You know what that stands for? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And I watched him live like that. And I watched him die like that. He didn't understand everything. That's not the route he would have chosen. But he knew the battle is the Lord's. And I just want to remind you today. God's asking you to trust him. Remember the question we always, we ask a lot around here. There are two questions. Can you trust God? And we would all say, oh yeah, God can be trusted. No no problem. Then there's that follow-up question. Can you trust God? That's the hard one, isn't it? Today, whatever you're going through, God can be trusted. He's got your back. The battle belongs to him. We let him have it. Whatever you're going through in your life.